There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner. And before I start today's episode, I just want to give you a little bit of a trigger warning. Today, we are going to be talking about suicide. And for some people, that is an incredibly difficult, emotional piece to to listen to. And you know yourself best. Uh, If you want to give this one a skip, there's absolutely no problem there. Just mind yourself. But if you are sticking around with me in studio today to talk about this topic is Mark Smith. Psychologist, do you want to introduce yourself? You the 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 ex the previous president of the PSI ex president past twenty twenty president the twenty twenty pre- the year that we all loved the twenty twenty president of the Psychology Society of Ireland, also the podcast that was nominated for an award with me your last one on who needs a therapist and why, um, suicide, yeah so, not the cheeriest topic in the world but something that. I think it's something that nobody really talks about. Nobody certainly wants to have to talk about it. But do you think that it's important that that discussion is had? We're having a lot more discussions about it than we used to, which is is a good start. Um, no, we, we don't want to talk about it, but we have to. Um, it's it's not a choice not to. Um, and sometimes with a, with a person, when I meet them, I, I kind of explain it like that. Look, this is maybe, you know, not going to be the most comfortable question I'm, I'm going to ask, but I'd rather ask it than, than not ask it. You know, and most people, um, when you have that conversation with them, are relieved that somebody has asked. Um, so, what are you asking? Like, are you? Do you have thoughts of suicide, or do you have a plan? I think a lot of people that I would I would talk to would be fearful that that's going to be the first thing you're going to ask them, because I think they they worry that then that will become it will define them that this will be the thing that's associated with them, and there is still the reality of stigma is still here; it hasn't gone away. So. In the course of a session, when I'd be working with someone where this might be something we need to talk about, I tend to ease into it. You know, you don't want to come straight out with first meeting someone and just ask them directly straight about it because um, they may not be ready. And like in anything, like we talked about before with therapy, there's always the issue around trust. Yeah. And if you're going to take this step to share that you're, you've been struggling so much that you've thought about taking your own life, you need to be able to trust that person there in front of you that they're going to handle that information safely and sensitively and and not make you feel worse than you already do. So I think that people's fears would be that if I tell this guy that I am suicidal, he's going to like lock me up or, you know, that things are going to get even worse, that 
or that that idea of my safety exit that I have planned for myself is going to be taken away. Is that true? Is that it? It certainly brings up a lot of fears, um, and with anything, suicidality comes on a spectrum. So there are certain times, yes, if someone is in imminent risk of harm, you need to take whatever action you need to do to keep that person safe in that moment at that time. Um, and I, I would say this directly to people. I say, look, I will apologize for probably lots of things in therapy I'm going to say where I might get it wrong. Um, I might even piss you off at times. And, and look, But the one thing I will never apologize for is trying to keep you alive. That's just the bottom line. It has to be done. But there's times, and, and we know that quite a, over the lifetime, quite a lot of proportion of the population will have a thought about suicide where it kind of comes in, they notice that thought and then it passes on. So in those kind of situations, we don't want to make the person think that it's a catastrophic outcome. It it crossed my mind and then we're talking inpatient referrals. Yes. Um, so we, we need to look at it from that, that full spectrum from it was a vague thought to it's a thought that kind of intrusively comes in and then it just kind of gets into our head and I don't really want it there to I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm thinking about it every day. And my thinking then progresses beyond just a thought to maybe the specifics of how I might harm myself to then thinking about planning, about when, about, about endings, about, you know, notes or giving things away or, or specific timeframes. So when you're having that conversation, so when we're having that conversation, we need to be able to differentiate between those, those early maybe thoughts that might come in versus someone who is in, in immediate danger. So the, the response that you're going to have to keep that person safe will differ depending on what the actual risk is in that moment. And do you think that if you don't have the conversation when it's just a passing thought, will it always lead to a plan? Or like how, how in danger are people when they have these thoughts? If it's just a passing thought that comes in and they notice it and they, they can almost maybe challenge it themselves and go, oh, I, I don't know where that came from. Um, that's So if a person has that thought and the immediate response that they have is to think of all the reasons that they want to live, then we don't need to worry about that. They're focused on on the reasons for living and not the reasons for dying. Um, if it's something where the balance shifts more, that they've struggled to find a reason to live and they're thinking more about the reasons why they might want to die, then it's a whole different scenario in terms of trying to, to manage and, and support a person with that. But the one thing that I would normally do when, when somebody has this conversation with me, and it's probably a conversation I have a couple of times a week, um, is to thank them. It's really, really important. And it's not the reaction that they expect. They expect that, you know, you're going to panic, panic and get into action mode. And hugely, I'm, I'm just grateful that they've chosen to to share that information with me. Um, because with anybody, when, when, you're, when you're doing therapy, when you're engaging with someone, you have a very clear and open discussion at the very beginning of what the limits of confidentiality are. That there are things that I can keep to myself as part of this therapeutic relationship, but there's things that I can't and I won't. And what are those things? Where there is an imminent risk of harm, where that person has a plan to to perhaps make an attempt of taking or take their own life. I cannot and will not keep that to myself. Um, so there's very... What do you do then? Like in who, the situation who, where they... Where like if someone comes to you and says, look, I know we've been working together for a while and I've been having these thoughts, but I, I, I don't want to come anymore and like I have a plan and I'm, I'm out of here. Well, again, similarly, thanks for telling me because it's really important that I would hear that. So 
again depends on, on the age of the person and, and the setting that you're working in. Um, so if I was working in the multidisciplinary team that I'm working with, I'd just consult with a colleague and we together kind of come up with a, a plan for what we do. If it's a young person, we would need to make contact with their parent and say, look, we're worried about your child. Um, here's what they're thinking about. We need to have some close supervision on them. If there's a particular method that they were thinking about, we need to make sure that we reduce access to those methods um, so that even teenagers in particular can be quite impulsive. So they may get a thought and act on it impulsively without fully considering what the implications of that might be. Mm -hmm. So working with the parents to make sure that whatever things are around that they might be considering to harm themselves with, that we remove access to those so that, that if there was an impulsive thought, that it's, it's harder for them to act on that. Um, in a very small number of situations, it might be that the person needs to, for their own safety, be brought to any um, in order for kind of a, a safety plan to be put in place for that immediate kind of crisis point. Um, do, is it the case that like you're operating on this on the basis that like this person has shared it with me, therefore they must want help because if they didn't, they just go and do it without telling me because they know I'm going to kick into action. Yeah, it's it's a reasonable assumption to make, um, and for everyone I meet anyway. They don't want to die, but they want their pain to end. Mm -hmm. And that's that important piece is that as well as that, that kicking into action piece around keeping the person safe, it's also really important to validate that you understand how much pain they're in, that you can see beyond the, the behavior that they're thinking about doing that's going to cause harm. Because it's, there's drivers. We need to look at the drivers behind suicidal behavior. And in the vast majority of cases, that's going to be the person feeling overwhelming pain um, or emptiness or a bit of both. So sometimes it's my, my feelings are overwhelming me so much that I don't know how to cope with them or I fear that I can't cope with them. Or I feel completely and utterly devoid of anything, shut off from all emotions. So there's that, that disconnect. So it's really important in terms of just that connection that the person has to the world that they see there's a person here who gets it. I understand and I'm not going to judge you for the fact that you've told me. You know, I'm not going to reclassify it and think you're you're mad or you're bad or that you're selfish or any of these other labels that get attached to suicide, which actually make it much harder for the person to stay connected to the world because I'm in all this world of pain and I hear somebody who's going to judge me for doing that and blame me for it. I feel bad enough as it is. Why would you make me feel worse? Yeah, I can I pose a counter argument, which might be a bit controversial, but you know, people say like, oh, you you can't like you couldn't kill yourself. Imagine what it would do to your father or imagine what it would do to your mother or your sister. Mm. Like surely someone's life isn't just about existing to keep other people from being sad. Like if someone is so desperate in their life, so unhappy, so low and they have tried so many things like endless psychologists, endless mm. inpatient things. And they're like, you know what? I just don't want to be here. Is is that not their right? <sighs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, a a debate, really, yeah. it's a debate that's coming up, I suppose, um, in, in the another sphere at the moment around. The dying with dignity the, bit. It's just a dying piece. Um <sighs> I suppose my training, my experience has always been that know that there's always the possibility of hope. Okay. And that when the person, and I can understand in that moment that the person is struggling with life so much that they can't see beyond that. Yes. They can't that see can really that, that, that it's there's possible. Something else. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to use platitudes and say, look, just hang in there. There's light against at the end of the tunnel. It'll all be okay. It'll be grand. You don't want to do that because that'll make them feel worse and invalidate that you're actually just not understanding how bad I'm feeling. But 
the, the way that I talk about it and look at it is that if a person is so devoid of hope in their life, okay, I can I can get that. And especially just maybe given the context of whatever they've been through and understanding that story. But that until they're ready to have hope again, I need to hold it for them. Okay. And if I can hold that hope for you and, and support you to a point where you're you're able to start thinking that maybe life might be worth living again, um, then I can give that hope back to you. Because and until then, they literally, I know it's a plastic, but they just have to just hang on, like just stay going each day until it lifts or... They do, but but not alone. They shouldn't be alone. So you're trying to look at support networks. Who's who's around them that allows that person to to get by day to day? Because if they're if they're struggling that much with life, to expectation of well, you just need to keep going yourself. Need to find some resilience or some strength to get through day to day. If that was that easy for them, they wouldn't be feeling like that. So it's better. Well, who do we have around you? Family, friends, your your GP, counselors, therapists, whoever it's going to be, that will be there for you to listen in a non-judgmental way to share some of that pain. So when someone is so overburdened by their emotions, by life, and they, they carry that weight around with them, they need someone that, that can carry that with them. Do you think it's advisable for someone who isn't a psychologist, who isn't trained like you are, like mm. someone's brother, sister, aunt, uncle, to ask that question about suicide to someone? Yeah, we all, we all have to ask it. And what do we do with the answer? Them? Yeah, the same again. Okay. It, it, and that, that's hard because I suppose if, if you're not trained to understand what it's going to feel like to hear that answer, it's going to bring up things for you as a person who asks that. If you're a friend or a brother, whoever it's going to be, that, that immediate anxiety and terror of now, now what do I do? Um, but you've done the most important part, which is to ask, to show that actually I'm interested in you enough. I want you to be around to ask you, have you been thinking about suicide? Because I don't want to lose you. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether it's an individual friend or brother or a therapist, the most important part when when you ask that question is not give any assurances that you're going to keep that to yourself. Okay. Don't make any promises that, okay, look, I'll keep this between us. So where do you go with that then? And at what level? You know, like if you say to someone, look, I've noticed you've been really sad and you've been down for a while. Like, mm. I just want to know, do you, have you had any thoughts about suicide? And they say... Yeah, like sometimes I think about it, but like, please do, can't tell anyone. So you first of all say, thanks for telling me, I can't guarantee that I'm not going to tell anyone. Yeah. So then they freak out and they're like, no, 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 like you're, if you tell my mother, you tell my wife, you're going to ruin my life. Like I'll never speak to you again. Yeah. And it's about trying to find a person that they would be safe and feel okay with knowing. So in, in many cases, that's going to be their, their GP, who is kind of supposed to the center of, of care okay. on the primary care level. Um, and would be able to know where if to be able to do a, a triage, I suppose, as well, um, because they'll have the training to know whether what level of support that person is going to need. So GP is not going to, for a low risk situation, say, look, you've got to go to inpatient care. They might say, look, do you know what? Actually, I have a, a therapist or counselor attached to the, the GP standing here. I think you know, it'll be worth having a chat with them or in immediate danger. Then they will know what to do, too. So they will mm-hmm. they will triage that. Um, but somebody needs to know because there's also that piece for the person who has, has heard that answer about how they manage that. And and if in a tragic circumstances person that, that was to take their own life, the person who then didn't tell, didn't tell and, and they're carrying now that burden. So we want to make sure that when we have these conversations that everybody is safe. Um, that's that's really important because um, it is a difficult load to carry. Um, and I've, I've had this conversation with, with many teenagers who 
their friends have shared maybe that they've been thinking and feeling like this and have out of goodness and goodwill tried to be like a, a friend and a therapist and to contain that risk for their friend at the same time but it really weighs heavy on them um, so much so that they end up coming to talk to me themselves so um, while it is a, a hard conversation to have there are also lots of services and training that people can do that allow them to prepare for this so to, there's assist training there's safe talk so there are ways that we can educate ourselves um, What are those? Assist training? So assist training or safe talk so these are, are, are training short trainings that, that we can all do um, that allow us to have these conversations and, and if it was to arise to at least have something to fall back on to be able to to know how to support that person to get more help. And is there any research done in that um, just by asking the question like does it help people? Is it an intervention? It is and, and I suppose one of the, the great myths that's out there is that if you ask a person about suicide that it will put the idea in their head. Oh yeah. So that's a myth that we just have to dispel. You don't it's almost even invalidating to the person themselves that you would if yeah, I just ask like, you the question then suddenly I will implant this idea in your head it. and that you will become at risk um, it is the opposite um, and the way I look at it is that if you ask the question and you're wrong and there's no suicidal risk okay where's where's the harm but if you're right then it's important to to, to ask that question to, to see where that goes um, so no I mean it, it, there's the odd the odd time someone has kind of got annoyed at me um, for you know, why are you asking me that? Um, As in, why are you asking me that? Yeah, I like, obviously am not there or why are you asking me that? That's my private, I'm not telling you. More the, I'd never consider something like that. Okay. Why, why are you even asking me? And, and one or two people actually just left the room and said, look, I'm, this, this, why are you even asking me this? But then the following week, come back, oh, do you remember that thing you asked me? Just, you kind of caught me to hop a little bit. I wasn't really ready for it, but actually, yeah. And I'm sorry about the way I reacted, but I didn't know what to say. I said, that's okay. We can we can have a conversation about that now. Yeah. So um, people are going to have different reactions to it. Um, but ultimately, it's always better to ask that question than not. Uh, and then take action on it. If if you need to. And sometimes that action might be just to sit with that person. Just, okay. Just to be there. So you don't always have to, like if someone said, because I'm just conscious that people will be listening to this, they'll ask the question and then not be sure what to do with the answer. That like yeah. if the answer is like, no, not really. I mean, it's crossed my mind months ago, but... Like at that point. Yeah, so it's it's with that person of, are you in imminent danger right now? Are you thinking right now or, or the next day or two that you think you might do something to cause harm to yourself or you might try to take your own life? No, and as you said, no, it was just something that crossed my mind. Um, I'm not really thinking of it right now. I said, look, well, if it does come back, you know, could you drop me a text? Could you let me know? Could you reach out? Or who mm -hmm. could you talk to? So you're trying to create a narrative with the person that there, there are other options. There are people that you can talk to because one of the, the fears that people have um, about having this conversation, so if, if you're the person themselves who has been thinking about suicide, thinking about this, they don't want to, from their point of view, burden somebody else. I don't want to leave you with the burden of, of knowing this information. Um, it's to be too much for you to carry. I don't want to upset you or I don't want to worry you. So they will create narratives that will dissuade them from having that conversation. Um, and I suppose the, the burden of, of completed suicide is far greater, far more traumatic and far more painful than, than a conversation, than a chat about how someone has been feeling. Um, so if that conversation does have, like I said, the when you're having it yourself and you're dealing with that just initial reaction of, oh, okay, this is kind of scary. 
but it is about that person in that moment and what we need to do and, and keep that connection and to say, God, I'm, I'm really sorry even feeling like that. That must be really tough. Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor. Supporting our sponsor supports the podcast and let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for Basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. I want to take a break to tell you about another podcast on our network that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Fireside and it's presented by Kevin Olihan. The episodes drop every Wednesday very consistently, which I appreciate. And the podcast is about stories of folklore or myth. And Kevin tells them as though 
they are being told as they were meant to be told by the fireside. Um, I really like that he tells the story but also then kind of goes into the history, the origins and the culture behind the story. So you get a little bit of a of a background as to like where these things originated from. Check it out. Let me know what you think of it. It's called Fireside. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. Do you think that suicide begets suicide? Like that, you know, the way sometimes there's a myth that like, oh, it always happens in threes and it ha- like if it happens in a town, then more people in the town will do it. Is that, which kind of goes back to the idea of like asking about it and putting, that something puts it in someone's head. But have you seen experience that like the, with the people that you work with, that if one person in a community does it, it has a knock on effect? Oh, that's a reality. Oh, right, okay. So, so it's, it's a contagion effect. So we know that the HSC in different areas have kind of suicide contagion response teams um, because it, it, it does happen, suicide does tend to happen in, in clusters. Um, and part of that, and what's really important when we're having conversations about suicide, is that we're really mindful of how we have them so that it's not going to inadvertently put somebody else at risk. So um, both the Samaritans, but also Shine have really, really good information about the reporting guidelines for, for doing that so that you do it in a very respectful way, um, but also that you don't inadvertently say something that could put somebody else at risk. What, so can you explain a bit more what you mean? So one of the things that when when it is being reported is that the the methodology that a person would employ to try and take their own life is should never, ever be reported. OK, um, you mean in media? In media or in in general, really, okay. um, I think one of the things that I've struggled with over the, over the last while with with technology and with social media in particular is that these guidelines and and reporters and the news and and they're they're great. They follow this. They really come from well, the training. They have to because the BAI, but new, like social media is not. But also on a human level, the reporters know that this is this is what they need to do. They need to be very respectful of it. But those same rules and understanding doesn't apply in social media. And I think people aren't educated enough. Um, so the suicide contagion piece is much, much harder to contain with the realities of Snapchat. So people hear some news and they immediately share it um, without actually thinking, how will the person who sees this, and we don't know how wide this is going to go, how will they react to hearing this news? What is what is their mental state at that time? Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's the immediacy, I suppose, of social media, of pushing it out there without actually thinking of both the content, but also the impact and how, how wide and far that net is going to go. So pre-social media, when there was a death by suicide in a community, there was a certain geographic distance by which the news could be kind of contained, contained so yeah. that that community could be supported. But that's much, much harder with social media. So I think the great work that Chine and the Samaritans have done with these guidelines, I think there's a, a piece that could be considered where we need to be actually much wider with that and actually teach people around if you are communicating about a death by suicide in an area that here are the things that you need to not say um, because this is a reality that we have to confront. 
Do you know what those things are off the top of your head, like the the, the guidelines? Sure. Um, well, specifically around that, that you you never share the the, Method. me- the, the, the methodology. Um, Which is interesting, right? Because it is the I think it's the first thing people want to know, and that's obviously. I don't know what part of our human brain that's from. Like, mm. if you know someone dies by cancer, the first question is, what kind of cancer? Type, yeah. If someone dies by suicide, how do they do it? And and when that's not... And even, like, someone has died, like, I've often become a web sleuth because of random murders that have happened in the USA and I just need to get to the bottom of what happened. And I think there's a survival instinct there for being like, oh, that could be me. How did they... You know, um, so not reporting it so there is an element then right of the social media piece not with me but if you're in the community there's always a I was there I saw it bit that's really quite toxic with Mm. anything even if it's a car accident or a firework goes wrong it's like I was there I saw it it hit the sky it was just horrendous that there's a sort of a social economy that comes with being adjacent to any sort of tragedy and in a world where we are always trying to capitalise on social economy in social media by getting likes and shares and having our profile raised, the impulse to share what you know is massive. And so, I yeah, I think not reporting the method by which someone dies by suicide is very important, but something quite str- like a strong urge that needs to be quelled there. It, it is, and that needs to be quelled through, through education because yeah. the reality is that someone who's struggling with their emotions so much that and their pain that they, they're thinking about suicide one of the things that will hold them back maybe from making that attempt is the fear that that it wouldn't be successful that they would be left with you know life-changing injuries or that you know that that they would, would end up in, in kind of more pain because so of it. information that shows how to do it successfully is make more likely that I might cross that, that, that threshold to do it so it's really important that we don't because we don't want to we've lost enough lives to suicide um and we've lost those people, but also the pain that's left behind within communities and within families. So it's like dropping a stone into a still pond. The greatest impact is always going to be felt by those closest, closest to it. Um, and I've worked with families bereaved by suicide um, and years and years later, that, that pain doesn't go away. The questions that are left behind, the why, why didn't they come talk to me? If, why didn't I see it? Um, or, or this piece of, what well, they didn't seem depressed mm-hmm. because there's this idea that y- you can spot someone yeah. who, who's thinking about suicide because the idea that, that it's always linked to mental health or poor mental health or that they, it, 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 most people say it just seemed to come out of the blue. I, did, I didn't see where it came from. So we need to not reassure ourselves that well, I don't need to ask that question because they don't seem like they're depressed. Um, but subtle changes in, in behaviour where people are kind of distancing themselves and it, it, they, those kind of that pain is internal so it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not always seen people don't walk around with signs on saying you know I'm thinking about suicide because I'm in pain because there's the stigma of you know just they're not wanting to maybe seek help not want to burden other people but it's an internal experience um, so I ask the question routinely for people that, that I meet when in, in my work setting um, and at least if I've asked that question and the question is no, if that person at a later point was to start thinking about suicide, they know they can talk to me about it because, because you, we've already broached it. Yeah. So they see that it's not something that I'm going to be anxious about having a conversation about. So you've left the door open for at any point if that conversation needs to happen. 
Can we just go back there to the the advice from the Samaritans and Shine? So the first one was not to share the methodology by with you know, the method that someone used. Hmm. Um, what else do they say? There would be other things that would be important around. I suppose the, the way that we we talk about it and we remember the person. So, um, in some scenarios, the idea might be to look. We'll go have a a very public kind of celebration of the person's life, and that is good in terms of people mourning and, and, and getting a sense of kind of community and healing around that. But again, there's also a piece that someone maybe who feels like nobody sees me in this world. They don't know that I exist. Nobody would care if I was gone. So all of these really deeply embedded fears that people have that they're they're alone in the world. And when they see something that um, is designed to help with the community mourning, but look and say, look, well, only someone will recognize me or see me once I'm gone. Mm-hmm. So that that's also risky. So, there, everything, so how do you combat that then? Like you can't not remember. No. Is it the way in which you do it? It's the way in which you do it. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be a big spectacle. Um, so that suddenly it, it becomes like, oh, look, look at this. This has become a big thing. And, and we want people to be. To be remembered while they're here mm-hmm. and for the things that they're doing, not their memory of when they're gone. So um, it's always a balancing act. And with with everything when you're when you're managing kind of suicide risk, there's no such thing as a risk-free solution, or that anything that would guarantee you that you can keep that person safe, which is scary in itself. Even as someone who works in the area, knowing that nothing is risk-free, no decision you make, no question you ask is guaranteed to eliminate risk. But the riskiest thing that we can do is not ask. So I will always ask that question because you you have to. So what are the other things that they recommend? They're kind of recommending like not sensationalizing it, the 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 death or the sort of life of the person. Um, yeah, so they, you also don't want to use language that kind of glorifies anything. Um, we don't want to have pictures or footage or, or anything that identifies either the the methodology or the location. Okay. Um, because that's important too that that it might become associated with that. The person might kind of go seek that place. Um. So we don't want to kind of do any of that. We don't want to kind of excessive coverage. Obviously, the way we report on social media has to be treated with with a huge amount of caution, um, but also speculation as to why. And right, okay. as humans, we we always want simple answers to complex things. So, oh, they must have been. They must have been depressed or there must have been something going on. Well, of course, there was something going on for the person because they they were in a situation where they felt that they couldn't live anymore. So that's a given. But we know that the drivers behind suicide are really, really complex and there's never a reason on its own. Mm-hmm. It's usually a combination of many different reasons that kind of built up. But engaging in kind of speculation in person or by text or on social media, we shouldn't do that because we don't know. And and it's done those unanswered questions that families struggle with for so many years. Um, the, the not knowing why um, so we don't want to when, especially when families or communities are trying to cope with the aftermath of the suicide to engage in, in speculation as to what it might be just adding to people's pain yes, and, yeah. and, confu- and confusion um, when when you don't know um, all that you do need to know is that that person isn't here anymore and that there are individuals and families and communities grieving the loss of that person and that's all we need to know in that moment um, and the second piece is, is there anyone so impacted by this that they are now at risk? Yes. So whatever about that person has gone and, and we don't know, 
but there are still people around here who who we need to be available for to make sure that they don't come to a tragic end too. And who looks after that? Like I know if it's a say if it's a school person, like if it's a school age person, I know that like counselors can go into the school and just make sure that you know do sessions with people. But like mm. if if it's what about the family cousins? Like is that up to the family to keep an eye on or the community? So there's with anything there's going to be multi layered responses. So with schools, the National Educational Psychological Service have a kind of crisis plan where if a, a school is impacted by by suicide, they will go in and they will support the school community around how they how they process that, how they grieve, how they they manage, how they communicate around it. So that's a really important resource that's there if needed. We hope, always hope that it's never needed. You never yeah. want to be going in a situation. But in the event that a tragedy does happen like that, they're available to do it. As I said, the, the HSE do have um, kind of suicide contagion response teams within communities um, who can organise to go in and to work with that community around all the different issues that we've talked about. So around how they kind of commemorate that person, around checking in, around just doing things that the community feel understood. They feel like there's supports available, signposting. Just even signposting that, and, and you know, instead of talking about those things that you know the, the methodologies and different things, is about okay, well, here's the things that we can share. So instead of sharing or wondering on social media about why someone died, is posting and reposting links to Samaritans or to the ISPCC or to to any of the, the the kind of crisis agencies that are there to support people, so that you know, if someone is struggling with it, that there are places I can go. There's somewhere I can talk if if I'm if I'm having these kind of feelings. So. Um, just being available, just I think that sense of community when when it happens, it does tend to pull people together. And my last question, I suppose, before we finish, is if someone has attempted suicide mm. and it has not been successful, even though successful is an odd word in that context, are they at a higher risk of trying again? And how do you manage that person? Is it different? Um. Yes, so any... Women. And I'm talking about like you, uh, in, in, but also like people like listening, f- family members, friends of people who have tried. Um, yes, yeah, so we know that after one attempt at, at taking life, there is an increased risk that the person may do again. Um, once there's an awareness that that attempt has taken place, obviously then there's greater awareness of the need to develop plans to keep that person safe. So while yes, there's an increased risk, there's also a reduction in risk because people are aware that the person now is in pain and that they okay. need help and support. So with anything, when we're looking at risk, it is about that, that risk that's there, but also what are the protective factors? So you know, having systems around that person that, that know, it, it, they don't have to wonder if they're in pain. We know that they are. Um, and sometimes in, in coverage or conversations um, around things like maybe a suicide attempt, you hear comments maybe thrown out about, oh, you know, they're just attention seeking. And that is so damaging and dangerous to say that. I always loved the idea of that phrase, like I was so baffled by it, like you're looking for attention. I am, yeah, this needs attention. That's it. Like, That's my point, is that if a person is in so much pain that they make an attempt on their life to get attention, you bloody give them that attention. Yeah. You know, and it's, well, you know, I don't want to reinforce that. No, you give them the attention. You pay attention to their pain. You pay attention to their suffering. You pay attention to what supports and helps that they need. Yes, we do have to manage the risk piece in terms of what's there, but pay attention to what's really important to them. What are the drivers behind why they felt that that they can't go on? Is it that they, you know, have, they've been struggling with living in poverty. They've lost their job. It's a relationship breakup. All of the things in life that are impacting on a person, what can we do? 
to go in and help that person to get back to living a, a meaningful life, whatever that is for them, where they can feel that I can get by day to day with some help. Um, so I think we just need to pay attention to those things that we're saying that it's we're stigmatizing people if we call it attention seeking. As I said, give them attention, but give them attention in a way that f- makes them feel helped and supported and not judged and not stigmatized and not blamed because that's not going to reduce the risk. It's just going to increase it again. Yeah. Mark Smith, thank you so much. If people are listening and they want more information, if this has touched them in either a personal way or they know someone and they feel like they need to get more information, where should they look? The Samaritans would be the, the best place to go um, if you're in immediate kind of danger or, or you're thinking that you might be at risk your family GP will also be the, the best person who will know what supports are available or if you're in immediate danger your local A&E will always be the place that will go for, for immediate crisis and if you know someone who you think is at risk the smart what, what were the two so the assist training that's run or safe talk safe talk and um, assist training yeah so having conversations are the important way to go with this because um, you never know you, you could be actually saving a life Mark Smith, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. If you have been, you know, moved by anything that you've heard today, uh, the Samaritans, as Mark said, is probably the best place to go. There are other resources there, which are in the show notes. Today, we are produced by Julie Hassett. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kaha Logara. And we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Mind yourself until next week. Bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.